We are in this series called Summer in uh, the Psalms, and uh, we are, or I am, sequentially going through the Psalms. Uh, last week, uh, uh, pa- uh, Pastor Chris took us uh, a little bit off, uh, off script. In the coming weeks, uh, uh, Andrew Wong and Philip Oridarko and Roy Wahab will be teaching on Psalms, not sequentially, um, but we've been, uh, or I've personally been making my way through the Psalms uh, sequentially. We find ourselves in Psalm uh, 65. The, the title for today's uh, message is Overflowing with Abundance, Overflowing with Abundance. And uh, in the introductory notes here, we, we, we see that the, the psalm is uh, uh, described as a psalm. These, these, these notes that are found in all capitals there, uh, at, at the beginning of each psalm, you see it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. And this is sort of the song section of uh, of. Um, of the book of Psalms. And so uh, Psalm 52 to 64, that's the section we've just wrapped up. Psalms uh, 52 to to 64, those were Psalms about being rescued from enemies. And that was sort of a common theme is that David was continually feeling threatened by uh, by his enemies. And then now Psalm 65 through 68, these are Psalms about uh, uh, about worship of God. And so Psalm 65, Psalm 66, Psalm 67, and Psalm 68 all deal with the theme of worship. The enemies kind of fade into the background in this section, but they all begin with that introductory phrase, a song, and they all ultimately are focused on worshiping God, but not just worshiping God personally, but wanting to see God worshiped globally, wanting to see God worshipped globally. And so the, the psalm here sort of takes us through three locations. There's three locations that are, that are described here in the psalm. It begins with uh, the tabernacle. Uh, the, the tabernacle is the place of worship. There is a sacrifice uh, being offered. And then from the tabernacle, it moves to the, to the ends of the earth, the mountains and the seas, as we heard Hannah Rose reading. And then, and then it moves to the, to the fields and the valleys that are overflowing with the abundance of God's goodness. We see the worshipers are being blessed and satisfied in the, temp, in the tabernacle as they're worshiping God. We are seeing uh, the, 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 the mountains and the, and, the, and the seas shouting for joy. And then we have the valleys and the forests singing for joy as well. The idea of this psalm is that God overflows with abundance towards his people in forgiveness and in provision and that our heart should overflow in abundance with worship towards him and that our worship should overflow in worshipers being spread to the ends of the earth. So if you're taking notes today, you can jot this down. First off, it begins at the tabernacle. God is our gracious Redeemer, the tabernacle, God is our gracious Redeemer. Verse 1 says, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. 
Verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. It begins at the temple. It begins at the tabernacle, this place of worship. Verse 1 says, praise is due to you. I have a footnote in my ESV Bible indicating that the the more accurate, accurate translation there is that praise waits for you in silence. That The place of worship, the tabernacle, was not just a place of singing and shouting for praise, but but, but the tabernacle was also a place of quiet, of silence. We, We don't allow for much of that in the church in North America. We sort of have this programmed approach. We got to get, got to make sure this is done in 85 minutes or less. People want to get on to the next thing. And, and sometimes silence can be awkward. And so we want to fill in as much silence as, as possible. We want to make sure the keyboard is playing in the background or someone's strumming uh, quietly and, and, and everything is filled with, with talking. But, but part of worship is silence. Part of worship is being quiet before the Lord. And we're going to have an opportunity to, to do that later when we take the Lord's Supper, when, when we take the symbols of Christ's body and Christ's blood. We're going, to, we're going to take a moment to be silent in the presence of God. Praise is due to you, or, or praise waits for you in silence. Now, the rest of the psalm is going to erupt into shouts of joy from coast to coast, overflowing from hearts that are satisfied in the Lord. I mean, even the mountains and the hills are going to start singing. There's going to be a lot of noise. God's not against noise. He, he wants things to be loud, but he also wants us to take moments of silence. The end of verse 1 says, and to you shall vows be performed. A vow is a commitment that, that God is a faithful God. And, and many people here have made a commitment. You have made a vow to follow Jesus. You decided to turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus in the gospel. You committed to follow him, not just as your savior, but also as your Lord. God is a God to whom vows are performed. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. This is a very personal moment as David is worshiping at the tabernacle, and yet he has this global vision. In fact, that's another thing that, that these Psalms, Psalm 65, 66, 67, and 68, they all have this note, a song And they all focus on the world. They all focus on the globe as as the place where God is to be worshipped. All flesh. Our heart for worshipping God should overflow into a concern for the rest of the world's population. That the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. That all flesh would come to him. Verse 3 says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. 
Uh, iniquity and trans- transgression, those are just synonyms for sin. Sin means missing the mark. Iniquity means how we pervert or distort or ruin what God has given us. And a transgression is when we just flat out rebel against God's plan and God's love. But it says, when iniquities prevail against me. This is describing times in David's life where, you know, he had fought many battles against many warriors and nations and armies, but the most difficult battle for David to fight was the the battle against the flesh and sin and the world and the devil. And there were times where David felt like he was losing that battle. They were prevailing over him. And he says, in those moments, he remembers that God, verse 3, you atone for our transgressions. You atone for our transgressions. Atone is not a word that we use in everyday language. In uh, ancient uh, Hebrew, the word means paint. It means to cover. Noah's ark, remember he, he made the ark out of wood. We covered this in our Genesis series. And then he covered it with pitch, right? With waterproofing. He painted the whole thing with, with pitch. That's the word atone. The ark that Noah built was atoned. It was painted. It was covered with paint, with pitch. So the idea of atonement is the covering of our Sin. In the, in the book of Leviticus, in, in chapter 1 of verse 4, it, and when the worshiper came to the tabernacle, they would lay, he would lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The, the, when the, he would lay his hand to identify with the animal so as to say, what's about to happen to the animal should happen to me because of my sin. And then the animal would atone. That animal's death would cover the sins of the worshiper. You see, our sins can't be covered by God if we try to hide them and cover them ourselves. Part of worship is to acknowledge that we're not worthy of worship. Part of worship is to acknowledge that iniquity and transgression and sin is often prevailing against us and we need forgiveness. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us that, that, uh, let's get Isaiah 59 on the screen here. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Worship is not possible when we're worshiping the world or worshiping our flesh or or worshiping the ways of, of the devil. But worship starts when we acknowledge that we need to be covered. Worship starts when we come to God and say, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. That is when God can Atone for us. You know, many uh, universities have different traditions around a campus. My sister uh, went to the University of Guelph, and I, I still remember going to, the, go, going to the University of Guelph, and there's this big cannon in the middle of campus. Any uh, U of Goo uh, students here? You know the cannon? Old Jeremiah, right? And uh, it was painted. It was, it was, you know, painted like silver and purple. It was all, it was all painted. And, and my sister said, yeah, that cannon gets painted like almost every day. 
And there's, there's these rules about old Jeremiah. You've got to sort of stand guard, stay up all night. You paint the cannon, whatever, if you're holding an event or if you want to, you know, propose to your girlfriend or do whatever you want to do, you would paint it on the cannon. And, and I remember my sister, some group that she was involved with, she, you know, the, they worked all hard, stayed, stayed up all night to, to paint the cannon. And then they, they went to get their friends and said, hey, come look, we, we painted old Jeremiah. And another group had already painted over their paint job. And there are, there are layers and layers and layers of paint on old Jeremiah at the University of Guelph. And, and this is how the Old Testament uh, system of sacrifice, of atonement, worked. It was, you know, you would sin, but then it would get covered. But then you sin again, it would get covered. And then you sin again, it would get covered and covered and covered and covered and covered. That's, that was the Old Covenant, you see, but the new covenant, it's not, it wasn't just an animal that was sacrificed at the temple. It was the son of God who was sacrificed on the cross. And Jesus Christ did not merely atone for our sin. He did not merely paint over our sin. Have you ever tried to paint over rust on a piece of metal and how rust just continue, continually pervades through? Sin is like the, the rust and we're treating it, you know, trem clad, you know. We're, we're trying to paint over it. But it's still, the sin still bleeds through. But Jesus didn't merely atone for our sin, loved ones. Jesus removed our sin. Jesus didn't just paint over our sinful hearts. No, no. He, he performed a heart surgery. He transformed us. He gave us a new heart. Because he is our gracious redeemer. And then... Going back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, when someone would, would lay their hands on the animal and the animal would be, would, be, would be killed for atonement, then the worshiper could enter into the tabernacle. That's what's being described in verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Our sin creates a separation between us and God, Isaiah 59 too. But atonement makes it possible for us, it says right here, for God to bring us near, to, to come in past the, the curtain of the tabernacle, to enter into the presence of God. But once you're f- past that first curtain, there's still another curtain that you're not allowed to pass into. In the old covenant, but again in the new covenant, Jesus said in John 12, and I, even I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. When, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he was going to, his sacrifice was, was going to open up the tabernacle, open up the temple to draw all people to himself. The book of Hebrews picks up on this same tabernacle language in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near 
We can do what Psalm 65 describes because of what Jesus has accomplished. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood, not by the blood of an animal, but by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And just like the worshipers at the tabernacle, we can do what's being described in verse 5. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. It says, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. All around us, we have these invitations to find satisfaction. And we feel this pull, this draw, this need to be satisfied. And we, we, we try to find it in all kinds of different places, like, like achievement at work, or, or in education, or, or power over others, or a, a certain relationship, or sexual fulfillment, or endlessly scrolling through social media to find something to, to entertain us. We're seeking satisfaction, and yet only true satisfaction is found in God's house, in his presence, when we follow his invitation to draw near through his son, Jesus Christ. So the question for us, loved ones, is are, are we drawing near? Are we taking, I mean, Jesus has made the way for us to enter into the, God's presence to experience his goodness and his holiness and his beauty. Are we drawing near? Are we taking the time? James chapter four, verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let, let, let's take the opportunity of vacation time or less pressure at work at, and a slower pace, more daylight during the summer months to, to, to draw near to our God. So the psalm begins at the tabernacle and, and, and shows that God is our gracious redeemer. Then it shifts to, to the mountains and the seas to show that God is our powerful creator our powerful creator. Verse five says, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. There it is again, he's going global. He, he's been personally forgiven, he's experienced the covering of atonement, he's worshiped in the temple, but then the psalm moves from the intimacy, the stillness, the quietness, the silence of the temple to to the very ends of the earth. He telescopes it out to the ends of the earth. And what he has experienced in forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and grace and mercy, he wants the whole world to know about it. God has overflowed his mercy and grace on him in the temple. And so he wants to overflow and worship and praise so that the world would see and know this great and powerful God. Verse 4 is all about drawing near. But then it, from verse 5 on, now it's all about reaching out. 
And, and this needs to be the rhythm of the church. This needs to be the rhythm of the Christian life. We draw near together corporately. We draw near in our own personal Bible reading and prayer. But drawing near is not an end in itself. We draw near so that we would reach out. We are filled with God's overflowing abundance so that we would overflow with abundance and blessing to other people. And that's the heart of this psalm. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness for the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas verse 6 says the, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might god made the mountains and then it says verse 7 who stills the roaring seas the roaring of the waves the tumult of the peoples. So you have mountains, which are like a symbol of stability and strength and permanence. And then you have water, which in the Old Testament and the New Testament really is a symbol for instability and chaos. In fact, in the book of Psalms and in the book of Job, you have these metaphors about creation, this sort of, this sort of other vantage point describing creation. And the analogy of creation in the book of Psalms and the book of Job is God taming the chaotic water and, and, and almost taming a, a vicious sea monster, a sea creature, and establishing land. And so this reference to mountains and the, the roaring waves of the water is, is a retelling of creation. God bringing order out of chaos. Now again, as followers of Jesus Christ, like everything becomes so much clearer, right? Like our sins aren't merely atoned for, they're not just covered, they're actually removed. And when we hear about God calming the sea in creation, I mean, you don't have to be a theologian to, to, to pick up on a theme about calming the sea, right? Like that, like that happens at some point in the New Testament, right? It's Mark chapter, chapter 4, verse 37 to 39. A great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do not care that we are perishing. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the sea, Be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus showed that, that he was God that day on that boat by, by calming the sea. He was saying, you know, Psalm, Psalm 65, about the great power of God. That's me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Everything that was created was created through Jesus Christ. He has the power to calm the seas. And then the psalmist adds an extra metaphor. Do you see it there at the end of verse 7? You have the roaring of the waves, but also the tumult of the peoples. The chaos, the, 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 the darkness, the instability of the water is used as a metaphor to describe nations. 
nations that, that go to war against one another, nations that, 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 that oppress the, uh, the, the innocent, nations that, that take God's law and try to write new laws in contradiction to God's law, nations that take God's truth and, and speak lies and, and distort what is good and what is true. The same God who created the world, who established the mountains and calmed the seas, is also in charge of the nations. Again, this is a a theme we see in the book of Psalms, starting from Psalm 2. The nations who are raging against God. And God subdues them. Just like God can subdue a stormy sea, he will subdue the nations that seem so powerful. So loved ones, don't get caught up into the, into the wave, into the storm of what we see happening around us. Cling to the rock, to the mountain, to the stability of who God is. And the end result, verse 8, as God works in creation, as God works among the nations, it says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. They look at what God has done and they stand in awe. So they have that tabernacle moment where praise awaits God in silence. Now it has spread to the ends of the earth. God has been working and showing himself in creation and his providence in the nation so that people who dwell at the ends of the earth are standing in awe of his signs. And while the people are silently standing in awe, there's something else that fills in the silence with song. Verse 8 says, You make the going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. The going out of the, of the morning and the going out of the evening shout for joy. Every day we we have this symphony that is singing for us, that is showing us the goodness of God. And it's, it's it's the rising of the sun, and then every day at the setting of the sun. Just, just in our country, that, that paragraph, I'm sorry, the, the picture on the, the top left there, that, that's Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. That's a sunrise on the east side of Canada. And then this is Victoria, B.C., uh, to the bottom right. That is a sunset. And every day in the nation of Canada, the, the sunrise and the sunset are shouting for joy, saying, there's a God. This is not here by accident. But are we, are we stopping to listen? Are we, are we waiting for God in silence? This is not just a light switch in your bathroom. This is an incredible, you think about all that's happening in terms of physics and astronomy and the earth spinning and rotating around the sun and and the beauty that God puts on display for us to shout for joy. These These are the signs that God is continually showing. This is why Romans 1 can emphatically say that, that human beings were without excuse. Because this divine power and invisible attributes have been clearly seen 
in what has been made. They shout for joy. They invite the rest of the world to worship. May you at some point get up a little early or you don't have to stay up too late to see, get somewhere where you can see a sunrise or witness a sunset and allow the beauty of God's creation shout for joy and lead you into worship so that you would stand in awe of God's signs. So that the psalm goes from the tabernacle to the mountains and the seas at the ends of the earth. And then thirdly, it gets to the the fields and the valleys to show that God is our abundant provider. God is our abundant provider. What would happen? What would happen if the whole world would acknowledge that it is, the world is supposed to be a temple? God told Adam and Eve, who were kind of like priest and priestess, to fill the earth and subdue it, that, that... that they were supposed to multiply. As Habakkuk chapter 2 says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is supposed to fill the earth the way the water covers the sea. And so what would happen if the world would acknowledge the presence of God, the holiness of God, not just in one location in Zion and Jerusalem, but from the ends of the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from east to west. Remember in verse 4 that The worshiper, when he is in the temple, he is satisfied with God's goodness. And now we're going to see that if if creation would acknowledge who God is, that, that, that everyday life is an experience of being satisfied with his goodness. Verse 9 says, you visit the earth. God's presence comes, just like God's presence is there in the temple. God's presence visits the planet, visits the land. And then it says, and you water it. When it rains, that's, that's not a, you know, a rainy day is not a bad day. If it rains on your wedding, hallelujah. That is a sign of the presence of God. And And God visits the earth by watering it. And and think about all that this would mean for for an agrarian culture like like the ancient Hebrews. Like water, rain was was everything. Again, there's a footnote in our ESV Bibles there that to to water is, is actually the word, it's to overflow. It's not just a light drizzle. It's a deluge. It's an overwhelming amount of water that God wants to overflow his people with grace, with abundance. It's, look, look, at the, look at the language in, in verse 9. He says he, he greatly enriches it. There is a, verse 9, there's a river that's full of water. Verse 10 uses the word abundantly and blessing. Look at verse 11. It, it, it used the word bounty. Verse 11 also says that, that God's wagon tracks overflow with abundance. This idea that God's walking around at harvest time. He's got a wagon that he's pulling with all of the produce and the the tracks of the wagon. There's so much food, there's so much abundance on the wagon that it's overflowing onto the tracks of the wagon and they're overflowing. There's an infinite, abundant overflow 
of God's goodness. This is the kind of God that we serve. Our God is a giver. Satan wants us to think that God is holding out on us. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. And that's what he's doing to us all of the time, trying to think that, 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 that to follow God means going without. No, no, following, to, following, following God doesn't mean going without. Following God means being full, being satisfied. His way is the best way. God is a giver. God gave Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve. God gave them dominion over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures of the earth. God gave them a garden that was filled with trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But we remember they ate that other tree so that they could become like God. Rather than receiving, they wanted to be taking what wasn't theirs. But then even though they ate from that tree, God still gave them coverings. He gave them atonement in those animal skins to, to replace the fig leaves that they were using to cover their sin. God gave them promises of a snake-crushing offspring who was going to make everything right. And then remember the story of Abraham. God gave Abraham promises and offspring and the promised land and blessing. And then even when that offspring ended up enslaved in Egypt, God gave them freedom. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, he gave them manna and he gave them his law and he gave them the tabernacle and he gave them forgiveness and he gave them mercy. And then he gave them the promised land. And in the promised land, he gave them a temple and priests and kings and prophets all to guide him. God is a giver. And it became most clearly when, when he gave his son. His son shows up on the scene and starts telling stories. He starts telling parables. He's like, let me tell you what my father's like. He's a giver. He's like a farmer who sows seed anywhere, on the path, on the rocky, on the good soil. I'll give seed wherever. No farmer does that. But God does because he's a giver. Oh, my dad's like a lender. Who, who, when someone goes completely bankrupt and, and de defaults on the loan, it just, it's just forgiven. Our God, is a, our God is a giver. Jesus says, my, my father is like a king who sets out a, a royal banquet for all the aristocracy and then goes out to the highways and byways and says, come and eat. Come to this wedding feast. And then he performs these miracles, these overly abundant Miracles, like way too much wine for one wedding party to drink, right? They ran out of wine, and then they had so much wine. And then thousands of people can't, don't have enough to eat. He takes a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. Not, he not only feeds them, but there's baskets. they got to carry these baskets full now of all the abundant leftovers. When he sent his disciples out to put the net on the other side of the fish, remember there was so much fish, the boat started sinking. Our God is a giver. His wagon tracks are overflowing this is the God that we serve. And loved ones, God gave his son and then his son gave himself. He went to the cross because all of us, rather than being thankful for the abundant provision and the goodness of God, all of us have turned our back on God and rejected him and, and committed sin and transgression and iniquity and have wandered from him. But God gave his son and his son gave himself to die as our substitute, to die in our 
place. This is the God that we serve. Our God is a giver. Look back with me at at verse 9. It says, "You, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. The, the river of God. This is hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. All of this abundance that we see at the end of the psalm. It's like the whole planet is becoming like the Garden of Eden. And this is a promise that we see in the prophecy of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 47, it says, Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. Remember, this psalm starts in the temple, and it goes to the ends of the earth. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary Their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. And then it's fulfilled in Revelation. The river of the water of life, the river of God, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on every side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for for the healing of the nations. The river of God, loved ones, is filled with water. And when you, like Psalm 1 says, when you plant yourself close to the water and stretch out your roots to receive the nutrients, you too can produce fruit. And God sent his son Jesus and Jesus gave himself, but Jesus didn't stop giving. Jesus also gave us his spirit. And he said in John chapter 7, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Ezekiel 47 will be true of us. And what's he talking about? How do we get the rivers of living water? Verse 39, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Loved ones, our God is not holding back on us. Our God's ways are the best ways. Our God is a God of overflowing abundance. And God has given us his spirit so that those life-giving rivers, it's not something exterior to us, it is something that is inside of us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, Verse 10, he said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The devil thinks that he gives us the impression that he's the giver and that he can give us pleasure and satisfaction and popularity or, or, or whatever, whatever we think will satisfy us. He comes as the giver, but he only comes for one reason. He's playing a shell game and there's, there's, no, there's nothing under any of the shells. It's all empty. He's doing a game show. There's nothing behind door number one. There's nothing behind door number three. And there's, sorry, my math is wrong. But door number one, door number two, or door number three. And there's no mystery prize. It's emptiness. It's nothing. He comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came that they may have life and have it 
abundantly. Jesus came to make the whole planet into the Garden of Eden. Jesus came to make your heart flow with the rivers of living water, the very river of God, so that we could, again, you think about all the different fruitfulness metaphors you don't have time to get into in the New Testament, the fruit of lips that sing God's praise, Hebrews 13, abiding in Christ, John 15, and we will bear much fruit, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. This is the river of God that is flowing in us and through us. Jesus came so that we would have abundant life. Look at verse 13. It says, The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So there's silence in the temple. We go to the mountains and the seas, the ends of the earth. The sunrise and the sunset are shouting for joy. And then we have this picture of just abundant fruitfulness. And, and the very fields are shouting for joy. And remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowds were praising him and they weren't silent at that point. They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, hey, if you were to shut these guys up, the rocks are going to cry out in praise. Loved ones, this is the amazing God that we serve, a God of abundance, a God who can't do anything but give and who gave us his son.